Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome. I'm Steve Clark, and thank you for being here. And as ever, thank you for supporting the trust. Mark Jarman, see me afterwards. <laughs> a very warm welcome to all our guests, and especially our new CEO and director, Tamley Newbury. You're very welcome. Um, to start, a big thank you to Martin and the team who put together the Avro biplane out there. I hope you all had a good chance to look at it. Um, I no doubt Eric's going to say a little few words about it later, but it was quite ironic. They put it together and wheeled it out, and it rained. So it had to be pushed back in again. Now, um, it's been 10 years, I think, Eric, since you were here last. Um, I wasn't, well, I was here, but I came along to the talk, but wasn't running it, um, to talk about your grandfather. Um, so in your own right this time, I know you've been here several times to do other things. Would you please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome Eric Verdenrow. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and um, I have to say that following on from those magnificent men, I won't ask for a vote about whether we should just carry on watching the movie and forget <laughs> the speech, because I've got a feeling I know what the answer would be. But I'm going to subject you to a, a few memories of my grandfather and um, the companies he created and so on. And um, I, I hope that it'll lead to some interesting conversations and questions afterwards, perhaps. So, let's get going. My, my grandfather um, was born in Manchester. Uh, the Rowe family had originally come from Ireland. And it was a very close-knit family. Um, his father was a doctor. His mother um, ran a children's home and um, did a lot of charitable work. And um, as you can see, it was a reasonably large family. Um, A.V. is the one in the top right. Um, and as you can see, uh, he's got the only blurred face in the picture because he was always moving, he was always active, he never sat still or, or whatever, and was well known for this in the family. He was very much the, the person who created havoc um, at everything. Um, they, they, used to ha they even had a family magazine which was edited by one of the girls, Elsie, and um, everyone else had a job, but A.V. Rowe was just mentioned as the person who made a mess of everything. <laughs> Anyhow, um, uh, this is them fooling around in the garden. They loved bicycles from a very, very early age. Uh, this is Humphrey, who comes into the story later on, on the, on the left, and A.V. here, sporting a moustache, which didn't last that long. Um, basically, when they were at school, um, A.V. was not a... Um, very good student, to put it mildly. Um, he failed most of his exams. The um, reports, um, school reports about him were universally dreadful. Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't concentrate, um, and so on. And his younger brother, Humphrey, actually, was quite the opposite. He was a star pupil. And he very much sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, kept him at the school, basically, because they thought, well, you know, it's a job lot, there's two, there's one that's doing very well and one that's not, so you know, we'll keep him there. But he did get into an awful lot of um, scrapes, and um, you know, Humphrey was um, very often the person who got him out of them. But of course, in terms of being bullied, Avi was a year older than him, and um, at one stage, Humphrey 
um, was was found by A.V. Rowe being um, persecuted by somebody, and A.V. took him on and had real fisticuffs with him. And Humphrey's memoirs say that it was that moment on that he realized that he would always do whatever he needed to do to um, support his brother in whatever he did, um, which was rather nice. Um, <laughs> he, he tried all sorts of things. Um, he did not know what he wanted to be. Um, he tried acting. He took jobs of various things. But he particularly liked his bicycles. And he, he would start um, uh, uh, racing bikes and actually earning some, a reasonable amount of money. Um, and um, here he is with one of his bicycles. Um, and he became quite well known in the newspapers. You know, he got written up and he would earn quite decent prizes. And in those days, the cups were, amazingly enough, made out of silver. So um, the cups came in quite useful later on because he had them melted down um, to, to pay, pay for his um, airplane flying. But he, he was still sort of um, restless. He went out to Canada for a year, which of a person for his age. He was actually only 14 when he went to Canada. Unfortunately, he got there after the um, uh, gold, gold rush had subsided, and um, there wasn't any work out there. But he um, had to fund his way somehow, so he started fishing. And he caught some fish, and he used to sell them to the boats as they came into port. And then he realized by employing the local um, Indians to fish, who were actually much better fishermen than he was anyhow, he could effectively act as an intermediary and um, sell the fish on. And that's how he lived for nearly a year before he then came back to England. He then went to um, Horwich and became a um, rail engineer. And then he eventually joined the Merchant Navy. And it was when he was in the Merchant Navy that he really began to sort of think about flight because he was um, sailing down the east coast of Africa for much of his time, up and down. And very often the boats used to be um, followed by albatrosses. And he was fascinated by the fact that an albatross would swoop and you know, stay with the boat for sometimes hours on end without actually moving its wings at all. It was just very gently adjusting to the wind currents and it was keeping itself aloft. And he thought, well, you know, if it can do it, I can do it. So he actually started building um, paper gliders and cardboard gliders and things um, on the boat. And everyone used to sort of think he was a bit nuts because he'd be at the stern of the boat hurling these things off the boat and trying to see if they would fly. Um, and gradually his ideas grew. Um, he was living with his, when he came back, he was living at his brother's house in Putney, which was quite a tall house. And um, one of the things that he did was to um, take a, a, a washing basket with all his gliders in it, and he'd go up to the top floor, and then he'd fly them all out of the window, and then he'd go out and he'd mark where they'd landed and so on. And um, he would repeat this over and over again. And apparently it was overlooked by a, a lunatic asylum. <laughs> and there was a, a lady in there, and m m his brother was a doctor, so he knew the, the medical staff there, and was told the story that um, one doctor um, was going around, and this lady sort of said to him, you think I'm mad? Well, I can tell you that there's a gentleman out there who's much madder than me. <laughs> um, but it became, 
more and more serious, and in 1906, um, he entered the Daily Mail competition with two gliders. And originally, it was quite a complicated um, competition because it started off in the, um, in the um, horticultural halls. Um, and they had a display there for two days, and then they took the display out to Alexandra Palace, where they did the flying. And he was walking around the horticultural halls, and um, he obviously looked as though he knew what he was talking about, and he was accosted by um, Charles Rolls, who was actually writing a piece for the Times newspaper. And um, so he effectively showed him around all the, the rival gliders and explained to him why this one was going to fly and this one wasn't and what was wrong with them and everything else. And the article actually appeared in the Times. And um, so that was quite useful. Um, he then went to Alexandra Palace and he flew his aircraft and they flew both the longest distance and the second longest. Um, and the prize was 50 pounds for, for, the, for the longest distance. But they, in their um, wisdom, decided that none of the aircraft had been good enough and therefore, they gave him 25 pounds for coming first and second, which was one of the many <laughs> things that happened. And you know, these things used to, you know, he used to sort of feel that the establishment was, I think, always a little bit against him. Um, and there is another picture, actually, which um, uh, is, has been taken of his airplane actually flying outside Alexandra Palace, which I recently found out was actually um, taken by Cody, SF Cody. And um, they got to know each other quite well at this stage. And um, while there was um, antagonism, I think, at some stages between various aviation pioneers, uh, the admiration between Cody and A.B. Rowe was very great. And you know, they, they did feel that they were doing rather different things. And um, they admired each other. Um, but you know, the 25 pounds was useful. And the next thing that happened, I'm sorry this is such a bad picture, and if anyone could ever find a better picture of the Davidson gyrocopter, I'd be very pleased to have one, because, I mean, you can see the man here. He is tiny, and it's got two huge, great rotating sets of fans, and the whole thing looks about as airworthy as, I don't know, the Eiffel Tower or something. Um, but A.V. Rowe had just actually met Charles Rolls again, uh, their paths crossed because he went to um, become, um, you know, apply for the job of secretary to the Royal Aero Club. And Charles Rolls interviewed him and said, yes, he could have the job. Um, but about two days later, he got this offer from Davidson to go out to America to help him fly this gyrocopter. And the pay was substantial, being Americans. Um, so uh, he told Charles Rolls this, and he said, no, you must go. So. He had a job for, I think, two days, Royal Air Club, and then went off and um, spent some months telling Davidson what, all the reasons why his gyrocopter was never going to fly. <laughs> um, but actually, I think it helped him a lot with um, uh, propeller design and things because, um, you know, obviously that was the, the whole thing about this, really, is whether they could make it work. Um, so, Eventually, he decided to build effectively what was a, a full-scale model of his smaller model, uh, smaller models, and he built this in his, the stable block in Putney, and brought it to Brooklands in December 1907. And 
Um, I think a lot of the pictures which you've probably seen around the museum and so on show the aircraft without an engine in it because he was perpetually waiting, really, um, in, in early 1908. Uh, he had um, he bought from J.A. Prestwich a nine-horsepower um, uh, two-cylinder engine, which I think is... I, I think my lawnmower is 16 horsepower. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it really is a miserably small amount of power to get an aircraft flying. But um, nevertheless, he had a lot of taxiing with it, uh, and he began to concentrate waiting for a better engine on towed flights. Now, um, the, the better engine, uh, the Antoinette engine, which was 24 horsepower, uh, arrived in June, well, uh, May, actually, I think, um, 1908. And, you know, he became quite an expert at being towed, and he used to get people, um, you know, to t tow him up and down um, the runway. He said that it was, um, sorry, not the runway, the track. Um, he said that it was fairly alarming because, um, you know, he, he agreed with them the sort of hand signals when to stop, but what would tend to happen is they would either stop far too fast or they wouldn't stop at all. <laughs> so he actually uh, invented a quick release system so he could release himself. Um, and he was really proud of this type of flying and he really did think there was a future in it. Um, and it probably got in the way of some of his later claims to fly because he was obsessed by talking about his towed flights, whereas actually people were only really interested in his powered flights. But um, when the 24 horsepower engine arrived, well, this is him actually again demonstrating in, in the hangar. Um, and I think I've got a couple of these, and you, I'm sure you've seen this. Here it is on the start line. Again, I think that's got the Jap engine in it. Um, and um, here it is in the hangar as replicated outside. The interesting thing about this is, again, you probably can't see, but here is a box, um, quite long box. And this is where he used to hide when um, you know, he was staying overnight until everyone had left the circuit. So he used to go and put himself into his box and just <laughs> lie there <laughs> um, because he wasn't allowed to stay here overnight. And the legendary stories of the fact that he only ate tin, tin fish and prunes. And I, I, I promise you the prunes um, were something that stayed with him for the rest of his wife, life. And he, he, he told his family about this. And my father was equally addicted to prunes uh, for very, many, many years. And, you know, yes, well, I didn't like them that much, but still. <laughs> so demonstrating coming in and out of the hangar. And finally, here's the 24 horsepower Antoinette engine with him fitting it up. And he added these interwings here uh, to give himself some more lift now that he had more, more weight to, to carry. And you know, according to his account, um, in, on the 8th of June, um, very early in the morning, he did one of his habitual test flights, which he did before crashing it and then going back and repairing it again. And on that particular morning, he definitely saw light um, below the um, wheels. 
and he felt that he had flown for probably about 75 yards. And, um, you know, it was this flight which was, for 20 years, um, uh, acknowledged as the first British flight. Um, it has got all <coughs> quite interesting since, um, because um, the first thing that happened, well, 20 years later, they decided to have a dinner in his honor, and it was Moore Brabazon who said, who had his own claim to, to, to the first flight, who said, well, you know, before we held the dinner, I would like the great and the good um, to meet to decide where, who was actually the first Englishman to fly. Um, the Goral Committee was set up, and um, you know, it, it met for some time, and lots of submissions were made. Um, it's interesting that um, Moore Brabazon was actually on the committee, which I've always <laughs> been interested in. Any of you who've recently watched the um, Jeremy Thorpe um, <laughs> program will see that sometimes the establishment can, can amend the, the result. Um, who knows? Um, he didn't have his witnesses. He had some written affidavits from people which... Um, came to light later, because he hadn't actually put anything together, really, to submit. He just simply went to them and said, look, I flew, I didn't have any witnesses, but I want you to take my word for it. And they said, well, we need witnesses. It was only when he came back to Brooklands in 1910 that actually two or three people came forward and said, no, I did see you flying. Um, and um, th those letters were then submitted. Um, and. Uh, Rather sadly, they were lost by the Royal Aeronautical Society, um, though Avibro had kept copies of them. And because they were lost, they couldn't be submitted. And um, I think that actually the secretary of the Royal Aeronautical uh, Society was forever you know, very apologetic to Avibro and definitely said, look, I saw them and um, I believe you. Um, but anyhow, I, I think at the end of the day, it's... It's a controversy that doesn't really matter, because if A.V. Rowe's story had finished here, then clearly it would matter. But the fact was that this was the first aircraft that was viable. Whether it flew or not, who knows? Um, he said it did. I believe him. Other people don't. Um, but he knew that there was an awful lot wrong with this aircraft. And um, in June, um, in July, rather, when he was hoping to work on it throughout the summer and make it fly uh, consistently, he was um, given notice um, by the clerk of the course at, um, uh, at Brooklands, um, a Mr. Radikowski. And I have here the letter, <laughs> which says 21st of July, 1908, um, it's addressed Brooklyn's Automobile Racing Club, Carlton House, Regent Street, which I didn't realize they were based in Regent Street, but apparently they were. Um, Dear Sir, I should be glad to know from you whether you intend selling your airplane shed to us for £15 or will remove same by Saturday. A reply by return will oblige. Yours faithfully, <laughs> E. Rodkowski. In fairness, I was given this um, by Brooklyn's Museum. <laughs> so they, they do feel that on that occasion, they probably made a mistake. Um, but he obviously took all his kit back to um, Putney, and he thought, well, what am I going to do next? 
Um, he looked at a huge number, about 15 different possible sites around um, London. And he selected in the end, well, it was virtually the one that really was available to him, um, the Lee Marshes in Walthamstow. And so he rented a railway arch there, and he moved there during the winter of 1908 to build his new aircraft, which was somewhat different. It was a triplane. It, it looks like an aeroplane, unlike the first one. <laughs> he had learned one of the biggest lessons in, in between these, because as you've seen on the aircraft outside, it's only actually clad on the top of the wing. He didn't actually really understand about lift. He thought that you incline the aircraft's wing against the air, and the air pushed it up. Uh, by this time, he had learned about aerofoil sections, and he had um, you know, mainly inspirations coming from the French as opposed to the first one, which was really inspired by the Wright Flyer. And um, it's a much more conventional tractor aircraft um, with his own solutions to problems that a lot of the aviators didn't have because most of the French were flying 25 horsepower, 40, 50 horsepower aircraft. And he had to rely on his little Jap engine uh, with something like nine horsepower. And that's with you know, poor fuel and everything else. But it, it was super light. And um, he eventually got it working. Interestingly enough, I'm just going back. Um, I'll come back to this, but if you just look at the, the prop here and then the prop there, this is a paddle, which is considered to be much less sophisticated. The first one is somewhat more like an aerofoil and looks much more like an aircraft um, foil. But anyhow, uh, he started flying, um, and it was very, very lightweight. And this is a photograph taken of one of his flights on the 22nd of July. And again, I hope you can see that you've got the railway arches where he was there. And you can see he's about 8 to 10 feet um, above the grass. Well, more at the front than the back, because he was always dragging. Um, but you know, he was making these regular flights. The Daily Mail came down and um, witnessed it. And um, he was flying really you know, several hundred yards and stopping, basically, because the next thing was the river. But we'll come to that. So uh, this is when he, his, his main claim to be the first man to fly an all-British aircraft. He built the aircraft. Brabazon had bought his from France. Um, it had a Jap engine made in North London. And of course, he was an Englishman. So, um, you know, that was an undisputed claim, which has lasted since then. He also was probably, whoops, um, the, f the uh, pilot who had crashed the most. Um, I think there should be a special award for that. And you can see here the sort of repairs that have been done to this aircraft. Um, and, you know, I have no idea um, how many times he, he crashed and what you define as a crash and what wasn't a crash. But he certainly was, um, he was walking out of some, some quite large messes um, over the years. But he never seriously injured himself, apart from once in America, which we'll come to. Um, 
So to celebrate the centenary, we set about building a replica of this with um, uh, AV Row employees. There were about 12 in the team. He had himself one, one sort of fitter to work with him, uh, who was a part-timer. Uh, these guys took three years. He took six months. Um, and they consumed so much tea, it's unbelievable, <laughs> to discuss every little bit of it. And it's a work of art. It is beautifully built. Um, and the thing that they found was that they kept looking at things and saying, well, nah, no, you shouldn't have done that. It would be much easier if you'd done this. And then, actually, they worked on a bit. And they said, you know what? His idea is better for this. It wouldn't necessarily be better engineering, but it just suits the aircraft. And they became more and more impressed by you know, his solutions to the problems that he had obviously faced. Um, here you can see the replica of the prop. Um, and you know, this was the one we put on it initially and um, thought definitely it was going to be the best prop to use. So I'll just hopefully, this is going to work. AV row is incredibly important in the development of British aviation because he was the first Englishman to design, build and fly his own all-British aeroplane. He was a man who was dedicated enough to go and live in a shed and live off tinned fish in order to build and realise his dream. He probably had the honour, whether it's the honour is the right word, to be the early aviator who probably crashed the most. He was always testing this aircraft, crashing it, learning a little bit, and then going back, remodelling it, coming back and having another go, and probably crashing again. But by July in 1909, he was really beginning to make regular flights, 100, 150 feet, and eventually 900 feet. And at that stage, he had to stop because otherwise he would have ended up in the River Lee. I'm in awe of his bravery. I wouldn't get, go up in this. When the triplane was made a hundred years ago, A.V. Rowe used his own engineering skills and judgments to do what he did. And apart from crashing the, his aeroplane once or twice while he was actually learning to fly it, um, he didn't really do himself much harm. And he could always repair it and, and perhaps change things to, to suit his latest ideas. Whereas we have to meet some of the modern airworthiness regulations, although for such a limited sort of a capability, they're not too onerous, but largely they result in additional weight. Provided that we have where we've got 20% more power available to us than 100 years ago, provided that we aren't 20% heavier, we should be able to see daylight under the wheels. But I should emphasize that for us, success will be getting off the ground, um, say, to a height of 10 feet and flying for a couple of hundred yards. The sound was just wonderful, that beautiful thrumming sound of that, that old engine. 
I, I didn't get a feeling of enormous power from the engine, but uh, it's, it's just extraordinary to be looking through this sort of letterbox of uh, a vision that you have. I could do with being just that little bit taller because there was just a big wing right in my field of vision. I couldn't see the end of the runway. But um, just this sort of impression of being incredibly out in the open, which I'm very used to and I like very much. I don't like cockpits. It's so being very exposed. But at the same time, having this huge amount of fuselage, you're just aware of this vast wing area. Yes, it's heavier, and our last final stroke is to get a lightweight pilot to have a go. to compare it to I mean I've got I've got thousands of hours of aviating to uh, to refer back to but they would have been doing it from nothing no experience whatsoever nobody around to ask it must have been just so difficult I'm left with absolute admiration for the early guys that aviated you know AV row what what an amazing man to have not only conceived and built this beautiful machine but to have successfully flown it to have crashed it again and again and got back up and stuck it back together and then gone again until he succeeded So, um, as you can see, the flex was amazing, the way he demonstrated that at the end. It was so, so, so sort of fragile. Um, it was quite interesting. Um, this is available on YouTube, and underneath it, um, there was a comment from somebody which said, so, did it fly? <laughs> well, unfortunately not. Um, it, it, uh, we got it up to about 17 miles an hour, and we believed that we needed to get it to 24 to fly. And, you know, in a way, We'd, we'd sort of um, uh, signed our own warrant by um, you know, deciding to go with an original Jap engine, a 1911 engine. If we had used a more modern engine, I think you know, we probably could have got it flying. But um, it was very satisfying to see, see it moving like that in the hand. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful aircraft. Basically, on the 1st of January um, 1910, AV Bro, uh had agreed with Humphrey, his brother, uh, who I mentioned at the beginning, to actually found A.V. Rowe & Co. And Humphrey was the Ann Co. at that stage. Um, and he had inherited a, a factory up in Manchester, uh, which was making uh, belts and braces for the army. And it was a reasonably successful business, and therefore he felt he could help fund his brother's enterprise. One of the first aircraft they built, they actually managed to sell to Harvard University. And they went with Graham White, Claude Graham White, 
to America, um, the two of them, uh, to demonstrate the airplanes. Unfortunately, um, Aviro crashed his during the first demonstration, quite spectacularly, ended up being taken to hospital, and um, was pres um, he was presented to President Taft at the White House um, in a turban, effectively, because he was completely bandaged up. But um, Graham White um, went on and actually demonstrated his aircraft flying um, outside the White House and landing there. You, can you imagine with the security <laughs> whether you'd be able to do that today? Um, but um, it was, it was, you know, the media absolutely loved it, and it was um, at that stage, you know, it was sort of turning the tables because suddenly the Europeans were coming to America and showing them the way, having obviously had um, the Wright brothers for eight years. Uh, they hadn't done an awful lot in between. Um, but it certainly helped put the name of A.V. Roenko on the map, and um, they adapted the basement in Brownsfield Mills in Manchester. Um, and it was extraordinarily tight, as you can probably see. The, the mill is still there today, and I've stood on this very spot, and it, it's it's hard to imagine building an aircraft there. There is one door in front of the main fuselage, which is about that wide, and therefore that was the width of the fuselage because that was how they got it out. And then all the wings had to come off and go out separately. So it was not exactly an ideal place to build an aircraft. Um, there is one other thing I'd like to point out, which is that um, uh, uh, in the story later on, um, uh, one of the uh, most valued members of staff that um, A.V. Rowe had was a fellow called Roy Chadwick. And in the door here is thought to be the earliest photograph of Roy Chadwick actually at the factory. Um, and Roy was employed um, because he, um, well, Humphrey was leaving the factory one evening. And there was a young, young lad on a, on a bicycle there. And he's, he, he sort of went up to him and said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I've just come, I'm sort of doing some preliminary work here because I'm coming for an interview tomorrow and I just wanted to make sure I knew where the factory was and so I didn't turn up late. And they started talking about engineering and so on. And Humphrey was sufficiently impressed that he went back and he told Parrott, who was the chief engineer, that this young lad was um, going to turn up and he suggested he employ him. Sure enough, he did. And that's how um, Chadwick joined the company. Um, and about this stage, or shortly afterwards, because Chadwick proved to be very good very quickly, uh, they started building the 504. Um, this is a 500, I think. Um, someone probably correct me, but I think it's a Type 500. Um, and, um, you know, it it was virtually the, the, the aircraft before the 504. I think they sold three of these. Um, they'd had, therefore, about four or five sales um, before the 504 started being built. Um, bef just before that, there was the Blackpool um, show, and they'd shown this aircraft, which was called the Mercury, um, at Olympia. It had some more rounded wings and so on. They were transporting this and one other up to um, Blackpool, and um, they were on a train. And when the train went up a very steep hill, it started obviously um, straining the engine more, and um, some coal ash 
came out and hot ashes landed on the canvas and the canvas caught fire and both aircraft were totally destroyed. And bang went all the profit that had come from buildings, building the other three aeroplanes. Um, so they were, they were really, you know, this was two days, I think, before the Blackpool show. Avira rushed back to the factory and um, Parrot had actually been building an aircraft of his own, but it was only sort of half built and it was a copy of AVs. So what A.V. Rowe did was he took all the bits and he effectively built the aeroplane in two days, including all night, and actually managed to fly at Blackpool because he, would, he, he wanted the, the flying money. It was, it was a, a good value thing, but it was, um, shows their determination and stamina you know, in those early days of running the company. Um, the other thing about Avro is having got the aircraft out of the, um, the factory, you then had to get it to an airfield, so they had to actually cart them through the centre of Manchester with horses and carts out to the airfield to deliver them. So, I don't know exactly when Roy Chadwick you know, started cooperating with AV. Um, certainly all the early designs of the 504 were AVs, but I think a lot of the refinements were, were Chadwick's. And um, it first flew in 1913, and at the outbreak of the war, um, suddenly they found themselves going from a tin pot little company, uh, having built a few airplanes, into something which very rapidly became one of the largest aviation companies and indeed companies in, in the country. Um, it was an astonishing turnaround. Um, there was a story that during the war, a third of all the spruce being used was going into Avro aircraft. Um, and by the end of the war, um, you know, they'd built 9,000 of them. But shortly after the war, um, in November, and you know, there was the sort of phony war that went on for some months where virtually nothing happened. Um, the first uh, uh, combined air raid uh, took place in the world using, well, four Avros, although three took off, to bomb the Friedrichshafen engine sheds. And the whole story of how they did it is just amazing. They, um, they disguised them in boxes, they put them on a train, they took them to the Swiss border, they built them in a hangar where they kept all of the, the employees inside because they didn't want any of the locals to know what was happening. People had to bring food in. Um, one of the uh, engineers became very ill and they had to get, bring a doctor in and then they refused the doctor to leave. To, uh, you know, this deathly secret. Um, they also apparently, um, uh, although they denied it flatly at the time, they said they'd never um, interfered with Swiss airspace to do this raid. But actually, if you look at the range of the aircraft, um, they would have had to flown over Switzerland to have done it, but you know, that's war. Um, they bombed the Zeppelin sheds, and it was a fantastic PR success. Um, I don't think it necessarily um, uh, caused a lot of damage. This is a, a um, painting by Brian de Greeno, and you can see the, um, the bombs there, which were released by a sort of um, handbrake, really. It was just literally you pull the handbrake back, and the bombs dropped. Um, one of the aircraft crashed and was shot down, a uh, bullet went straight through the fuel tank, but didn't, didn't damage, you know, didn't catch fire or anything. It just, fuel ran out and he landed. Um, and actually it was only the commander of the 
airbase who actually saved his life because there were a lot of people who were um, you know, local farmers with pitchforks who went up to him and they were all for impaling him, but he said, no, you shouldn't do that. Um, later in the war, who knows? Um, but anyhow, it was a huge PR success and um, uh, it would have been much better if they'd you know, hit the Zeppelin, but they didn't. Um, but it was probably the, the, um, the main time when the um, aircraft was used as a bomber because although production was fantastic, increasingly it became used as a trainer, as an auxiliary aircraft and all sorts of other purposes um, and its frontline uh, uh, history wasn't that long. It, it does have the, um, the, the credit or whatever of being the first British aircraft to be shot down in the First World War as well. Um, but as you can see, they were producing them uh, en masse out of Newton Heath, which is where they moved to initially before they then finally found their flying grounds in uh, Woodford. But um, again, very much a, a city-based city um, manufacturing business. Um, recently, we've had the pleasure of um, uh, getting an Avro 504 in, into the air. Um, I came across this company in Argentina uh, called Pure Song, and uh, their interest in the Avro 504 came from the fact that uh, the Argentine Air Force had um, their first squadron was of Avro 504s that had been bought uh, from Manchester and sent out in boxes and assembled in Argentina. So despite what has happened with other Avros later, uh, the Avro 504 is held in great affection in Argentina. And they have some fantastic engineers there. Um, the uh, University in Buenos Aires turns out some really first-class engineers, most of whom go on into the German motor industry. Um, and Pure Song take two or three a year and persuade them to stay in Argentina and um, uh, build replica cars, um, mainly Alfa Romeos and um, um, Bugattis, but they've done Mercedes and all sorts. Um, so th this aircraft took us a long time to get into the UK, and you can imagine that having been built in Argentina, firstly, the customers were very suspicious of it when it arrived, um, sniffer dogs and all sorts of things. Um, and then, you know, getting it through the LAA was a long period. A lot of people told me we'd never do it, but um, we did, and it's now flying, and um, it's based up at Sywell in Northamptonshire, and it was at Shuttleworth um, uh, last weekend, and is now going to be doing the tours of a lot of the um, uh, air shows this summer, um, which includes um, Riyadh and Farnborough, and um, it's part of the Great War uh, display team, um, and basically it lumbers around till it gets shots down. <laughs> but I mean, A.V. Rowe's story sort of at A.V. Rowe & Co. Uh, ends really shortly after the 504. They built a lot of other aircraft types in Hamble and so on, but he was having a, a, in, an increasingly difficult time for two reasons. The first is that uh, he believed that they should be based on the south coast of England because he had this obsession with seaplanes. Um, he also liked the weather a lot better than Manchester. <laughs> um, 
also, in the, you know, in the post-war years, the aviation business was terrible. Um, you know, and I think uh, they built almost anything they could. Um, you've probably seen the Harper runabout in the one of the sheds here, which was one of the things that they built. Not a great machine, but you know, it, it kept the, the workers going. They built billiard tables, they built coffins, um, almost anything that they could get a contract for to keep their engineers together. Um, and therefore, they had terrible financial problems because they, they employed a lot of people. Um, by 23, um, he um, eventually sold a large chunk of shares to the Crosley organization, who had been interested and involved with the company for some years. And it was really that that then led them to sell, when they themselves ran into trouble, uh, to the Sidley organization. And Sidley's acquired a controlling interest. And having done that, um, it was only a matter of time before this rather lunatic guy running Avery Row & Co. was going to be asked to go. And sure enough, in 1927, it, it happened. Uh, they bought him out. And um, he, he went on gardening leave, although I don't think the term was invented in those days. But he looked around, and um, uh, he, he made various um, plans. But I think just, you know, I'm sure you know us, but just to run through what really happened at Avery Row & Co. Because Roy Chadwick was um, chief designer by that stage and had been for some time. And he and Roy Dobson were the two people who A.V. Rowe really relied on to run the company. And Roy Chadwick, I think, is an amazing hero of British aviation. And I think the single thing that's most extraordinary about him is he did work on the Avro 504, a First World War biplane. He worked on the Anson. He designed the Lancaster and all its derivatives, you know, the Lancastrian, the York, and so on. Um, but he even started designing Vulcan. So you know, he went from a biplane to a V-bomber. And I don't think any other single designer probably uh, encapsulated such a, a change in design. And tragically, he was killed. And who knows what would have happened if he had carried on for another 15 to 20 years, which he could have done. He also must be the man. I've looked at a lot of pictures of him. He probably used more Brill Cream than any other person <laughs> in England. It's absolutely extraordinary. <laughs> but um, he designed the Tudor, and the Tudor was the replacement to the 504. This is the Shuttleworth aircraft. Um, the Anson, again, which has just now been repainted, actually, and was on show for the first time at Shuttleworth. And you can see the size of the business here. This, this is the drawing office. And it's well like that Charlie Chaplin film, you know, the sort of just going on forever with sort of desks all lined up, you know. But absolutely vast um, design office and so on. And this is the scale of the company that, that they left. Um, Roy Dobson also is um, a huge mover and shaker. And it was his bloody-mindedness that saved um, the Manchester and turned the Manchester into the Lancaster. I mean, the Manchester was a failed design. It was built to a spec by the war, for the war office, and it lost against a competitive bid, and they were told to scrap it. And Dobson said, no, I won't. 
he, he knew the aircraft was fundamentally found, sound, but it only had two engines, and it also had um, a, um, a really unreliable uh, Rolls-Royce engine. I think it was the Vulture engine. Um, and it, they used to, they were very unreliable. A lot of crew got killed in them through engine failure, and they were not popular aircraft at all. Um, so that they decided to stop building them. It was Roy Dobson who totally went against all his instructions and said, no, we're going to put four engines in this. We're going to extend the aircraft. So you, you've got the um, two engines, and you can see here you've got the straight spar. And all he did was effectively, um, you know, you've got, still got the straight spar here. He added these two bits of wing section and added the extra engine. And effectively, at a stroke, turned one of the worst aircraft in the Second World War into probably one of the best. And um, it was really absolutely down to Roy Dobson that he did that. And I, I haven't covered it here, but just to say that Roy Dobson also uh, was passionate about Avro Canada. And Avro Canada was an astonishingly successful company. I mean, in, at the end of the war, it was building more Lancasters than anywhere else. Um, it was, um, it had everything it needed. They had wonderful new uh, uh, jet engines. They were building both a fighter and a four-engine jet, which would have beaten um, Comet. It actually flew, I think, 10 days after Comet. <coughs> but it was a much more reliable aircraft without the problems that Comet had. And it would have been a perfect aircraft for flying intercity in the USA. Um, it was totally shut down by the Americans. Um, and they were told to scrap uh, the Avro Arrow, which was a beautiful aircraft. And they just sought them up on the spot. And they were, they were fabulous aircraft. But that was Roy Dobson's legacy. And at one stage, apparently, uh, <coughs> Avro Canada was the fifth largest company in Canada. Um, so it was a hu huge sadness when it was closed. And it, if you just get, go onto the, the internet and uh, look at Avro Canada, there are still people now outraged what happened to that company because <coughs> it, was, um, it should not have been shut down, but it was. Um, and one American uh, just called it, when he looked at this aircraft, he said, my, my God, it's just a huge Bombay. And it was, and um, that's really what made it such a successful aircraft and much loved by its crew. And then, you know, in many ways, probably the most famous Avro, um, the Vulcan V-bomber, um, as I say, initially designed um, uh, by, by Roy Chadwick. Um, but interestingly enough, and a little bit of a plug in the um, uh, catalogue, which you can, which was for for the anniversary ten years ago. Um, there is an interesting little bit in the back here, which is a letter from A.V. Rowe to Roy Dobson, despite the fact he'd left in 1927, um, dated 11th of the 5th, 41. And quite clearly, you can't see it here, but he drew and described the Avro Vulcan and said, this is what you should be building. And this is 1941, and this flew in 1952. So um, quite interesting. Um, so um, that's the history of Avery Rowe & Co., which everyone knows. Um, 
And um, the Vulcan was only ever once used in anger in the Falklands. And we all know that also in Vulcans of the Sky did such a fantastic job in keeping that aircraft going for so many years. Sadly, it's, it's only taxiing on the ground now, but it's still a very, very emotional aircraft for me and I think a lot of other people, not least because it first flew on my birthday when I was born. <laughs> so we share a birthday. Um, uh, A.V. Rowe um, took his, his money and went and acquired S.E. Saunders, uh, which was a, mainly a boat builders, but they had built Avro 504s under licensing cars. S.E. Saunders were originally um, at Henley and built um, sort of a lot of the, the Henley um, long uh, steamers, you know, the um, sort of um, riverboats. And in fact, actually, for many years, when you watched the um, boat race, the umpire's boats were um, Saunders uh, boats built to this particular construction, the Consuta construction, which was sort of uh, brass and I don't know, someone else could describe it, but it's basically almost like plywood, but used with wood and brass, brass fittings. And it was very strong and very light. And they used that in their aircraft as well. And so, um, you know, A.V. Rowe had, as I'd mentioned, a passion for seaplanes and believed that this was going to be the future. And, you know, I think it's interesting that the war changed all that because obviously during the war, airfields were built all over the world by the military. And if they hadn't, then land would have been very valuable and so on. And the thought of taking flying boats right into the middle of the city centers, places like Sydney, you know, they've all got wonderful harbors, uh, could have been the way forward. So maybe if the war hadn't happened, A.V. Rose's dream wouldn't have been so silly. But um, they worked on various aircraft. They, they did other work. Um, uh, this was the um, uh, a Miss England powerboat, which um, uh, broke the powerboat record um, with Seagrave. Uh, that was fettled at uh, A.V. Rowe and Co. Um, and then on to... In England, a huge princess flying boat leaves the building hangar. To clear the top of the door, half the tail's left off and the nose tipped up. The wheels are part of her beaching chassis. The finished tail will tower as high as a small house above the hull. Watching manoeuvres are designer Nola and test pilot Tyson. Three princesses are under construction. First planned as airliners, they'll now be used as troop carriers. The ten engine giants will carry 200 men more than 3,000 miles. In one year, the three could transport as many men as nine ordinary troop ships. With a wingspan of nearly 220 feet and a length of nearly 150 feet, they're by far the largest flying boats ever built in Britain. Britain's Saunders Row flying boats, largest aircraft ever built in this country, take another step towards completion. Three are under construction. And here goes the first pair of the 10 Bristol Proteus pop turbo engines into position on the first one. Each engine weighs five tons and develops 3,500 horsepower. The 10 together giving the Princess a cruising speed of nearly 400 miles an hour. If 
rearmament doesn't stop building, the first princess is expected to fly in October. Lying outside Cowes, Isle of Wight, Britain's mammoth flying boat, the Princess, prepares to set out on her first taxiing trials. The crew is already on board, and the ten prop jet engines roar into action. The huge aircraft taxis out onto the Solent, and she's airborne. Nobody expected her to take off so soon, but the weather's just right for test pilot Geoffrey Tyson, who's at the controls, and she's already touching 225 miles an hour. On her first flight, the Princess covered 120 miles. According to her pilot, she handles like a jet fighter, despite the fact that she's bigger than the mighty Brabazon. The Princess, the world's largest practical passenger-carrying flying boat, is brought out of its hangar at Cowes, Isle of Wight, to be launched. Ten prop jet engines, eight of them coupled in pairs, will give a total of 35,000 horsepower. Two other princesses, still under construction, dwarf the Saro A1, the world's first jet flying boat fighter. Everything's big about the princess. It's got a wingspan of 219 feet and stands nearly 56 feet high from ground to tail. Experts forecast that over 100 passengers can be carried non-stop nearly 5,000 miles in its double-decker hull. But now the aircraft certificate of airworthiness is to be signed, and test pilot Geoffrey Tyson willingly lends her back. As the huge aircraft enters the water, a final... From every country except those behind the Iron Curtain, thousands have come to Farnborough to see and buy the world's finest aircraft, all stamped British made. The giant 10-engined flying boat Princess makes a surprise visit. It seems to be goodbye to the Princess flying boats. They're for sale. The three of them cost 10 million pounds just over 10 years ago. If they have to be sold for scrap, they'll fetch about 18,000 pounds. Pity the poor taxpayer. Unfortunately, the jet age overtook them. Airlines chose comets and Boeings for long flights. For the Princess flying boats, there were no buyers. Although they could have carried more than 100 passengers 5,000 miles non-stop. It was suggested that the 10-engined, 35,000 horsepower aircraft be used as military transports. But even that idea was abandoned. Back in 1952, we shot these films of one of the Princess flying boats being put into the water at Cowes. She had a certificate of airworthiness. She never had any passengers. In the aircraft industry, the country has learned to cut its losses. And what losses? Is it a pipe dream that even at the 11th hour, some use will be found for the Princess flying boats? So, yes, it was a, a story of hope followed by um, sad failure, but um, it was a great dream. And um, I think that, as they said there, you know, the, the problem with the princess was, you know, the jets came along and, um, you know, it was never viable, but it was a fantastic dream. As you saw in that, there was also the SRA-1 jet fighter, which was... A phenomenal piece of design, not a very sensible design, I think, really, to have a jet that close to salt water. But um, it, um, 
it was also not that good to fly. And, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, it killed one of his test pilots. But it, it appeared here at the Festival of Britain. And um, it was considered to be, you know, the, the next big thing. So what happened to A.V. Rowe? Um, he carried on being the um, chairman of uh, Saunders Rowe for the rest of his life. Um, he'd always, in parallel with all his work, um, he had been fascinated by economic personal transport. And this was a little uh, uh, by car that he built in the 1920s, which he thought would be the answer to city center problems. It's all rather topical nowadays. Um, but you know, he felt a man could wear a suit and go to work, and that was the great sort of um, next step. Um, he, therefore, well, here we go. From the Channel Islands to Rowlands Castle in Hampshire for another in our series on distinguished personalities of our time, introducing this time Sir Elliot Verdon Rowe, the aircraft pioneer, surrounded in his study by trophies and medals commemorating his services to aviation. Places of honor, photos of his two sons, both squadron leaders, killed in the last war. But Sir Elliot, now over 80, in 1908, the first man in Britain to fly, he used a 24 horsepower biplane, is not content to live in the past. His fine mind is still active, and while he no longer designs great aircraft, he keeps his hand in with smaller but ingenious contraptions, like this latest invention, a 60 mile an hour bi-car, the nearest thing to a car on two wheels. Prototype bicar is really a shaft-driven armchair scooter, almost a foot lower than the standard scooter and with a seat between the wheels. Features include a cushioned backrest and handlebar grips inclined like the steering wheel of a car. The driver's legs can be stretched out in front instead of down, and in rainy weather he can be completely covered by a plastic canopy. The prototype took Sir Elliot a year to design and build, lying on his back almost every day, often for 12 to 16 hours a day. But the inventor is physically as well as mentally in the pink, which we're about to illustrate. The bicycle too, by the way, you'll notice bears the signs of adaptation to his own requirements. Sir Elliot is over 80, the feat is quite remarkable, although when you think of it, for a man of his stature, nothing is impossible. I, I love the picture, um, the image of my Aunt Patricia looking at him, thinking, oh gosh, he's at it again. <laughs> so... The end. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you, Eric. Now, I'm sure there's some questions from the audience. Someone has to be the first. Are we on? Yes. We are Hello. On. Excellent. Thank you very much. 
Uh, you mentioned some of the early um, aircraft he built when he was working here and uh, in Lee Marshes were made in Putney. Now, where was? Do you know where the location was in yes, Putney? Yes, it's. Um, I think it's 46 West Hill. Um, there is a plaque on it now, actually. Um, there is no building there, um, but there is a wall which has got a, a green plaque on it, which is the Wandsworth um, Council version of the blue ones. But you can see it. It was his, his brother's surgery. And interestingly enough, I mean, A.V. Rowe was um, not a man who had much time to socialize. And um, I believe, though no one's ever actually corroborated it, that the, um, the admissions secretary at the um, surgery later became his wife, and that's where he met her. So you know, he, he obviously wasn't very go good at going out and partying and meeting people. Let's go and check it out. I worked in public. Right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. David. Thank you. That was lovely and strangely moving as well. Um, so what was Avi like as a grandfather? Well, I was very lucky. Um, that picture before this one um, was taken um, on his 80th birthday party, um, literally two or three months before he died. And um, I was actually at that party and remember him riding his bicycle around. He, he was a prankster. I mean, he... he he was, he was the sort of person who used to phone you up and make phone, hoax phone calls and you know, put on silly voices. Um, he had an amazing table in his dining room, uh, which had a tablecloth on it. And he would lay the, the tea stuff out just in a certain way. And then he, he had built it so he had a lot of little levers. So he could, just without seeming to do anything, suddenly one of the plates would start rising and <laughs> the sugar bowl would go up and down. <laughs> You'd say, do you think there were some ghosts around today? <laughs> so he was always doing that sort of thing. I mean, unfortunately, I was only um, six and a half when he died, so I don't really remember. I, I never spoke to him about airplanes, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, he, he, was, he was always good for a laugh. Uh, a good friend of yours, I think, may uh, Mr. Crockett. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Eric. That was really great. Um, just talk, quite interesting. You, he, when he was at Brooklands and being towed and so on, he crashed quite a lot. Is that was that to do with primitive control systems? What what was what was his? How did he control the aircraft? What was what were the stability mechanisms? Do, well, do you know? um, it's a very good question. Um, uh, Philip Jarrett. Uh, wrote quite a lot about this in his book. Um, and he, he felt that A.V. Rowe was a very clumsy pilot because what he used to do was to sort of jerk the aircraft. I mean, uh, you, the, there was one picture of a triplane just taking off, which was very highly inclined. And, you know, I think that this, talking to the guys who built the triplane, they were saying actually that he was doing that because that's what the aircraft required. Um, and you know, obviously, as it was said several times, you know, these pilots had to learn on the job. So you only had a few seconds in the air to sort of try and work out what to do. But you know, bearing in mind, he wasn't trying to go left or right. You know, he was just trying to get up in the air and go straight on, ideally. So it was mainly, um, you know, get, getting it trimmed. But it was it was getting the the power, you know, and you know, the, the angle of attack right to, to actually rise into the air. 
And, um, you know, I think very frequently, yes, if he, he got it up and he'd stall it. And it, I, I remember there is one account of it, him, them saying that he took off and stalled and it just landed on its tail and it completely crumpled up uh, at the back. But, you know, three days' work and he's back out there doing right. it again. Another question. It's bound to be someone over this side because I'm this side now. Yeah, I thought that. <laughs> You'll have to wait, Gareth. You can go next. Yes, Fran. Uh, so at the beginning of the talk, you said that when he um, was given £25 instead of 50 or guineas or yes. something, did you say he actually took the first and second prize with yes. his gliders? And they gave him £25. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's absolutely right. Yes, his, you know, his were the two most. He took two models, and they were the the, the most successful flights. Um, what one of which was a pusher, and one of them was a tractor. So he was trying everything at that stage. Thank you, Gareth. You keep the mic down so you're a bit closer. Yeah, you mentioned that obviously he was kicked out of Brooklyn's fairly quickly. Do you know why that happened? Because obviously aviation started here not that long after that, did it? Uh, well, I think um, Rodokowski hated aircraft. He felt they got in the way of motor racing. He was a motor racing man. And um, you know, he was therefore anti-everything. But I think AV himself probably didn't handle him very well. <laughs> um, he, he also did do some fairly naughty things. But again, he was trying to sort of... Um, uh, work around the problems he had. And one of the problems was his aircraft hangar was behind the railings. And so what he did is he, he basically sawed off the railings and made them demountable. <laughs> and I don't think Rodokowski ever found that out because otherwise he probably would have been out rather earlier. But basically he would come and he would remove the railings and then push his aircraft out and then put the railings back into their slots and hope that no one noticed. I don't think it would help with safety, actually, if there was an accident either, because the railings would have been just useless. Great story. Another question, maybe, ladies and gentlemen. One more, okay. Would be in the middle. You'll have to pass that down if you don't mind. Nice coloured trousers, by the way, Excellent. sir. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you tell us, is there any truth that... Um, he was so strapped for cash uh, when he was carrying out his experiments here that some of the aircraft that he built used a covering of brown paper yes. rather than fabric. Yes. Well, it was for two reasons. Um, it was also lighter. And he was battling in every way with um, lightness. So, yes, he, he, he did use um, brown paper. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I think he coated it. Um, I, I think, um, I, I can't remember what he coated it with, but he effectively sort of lacquered it, and um, it, would, it would shrink quite nicely into place, and um, it, it wasn't too bad. You've got to remember that, you know, he, he was trying to take that, he was probably trying to travel at 20 miles an hour, something like that. Um, so, you know, the stresses of the actual wing, you know, because a, a large wing area, um, it wouldn't have been that, that bad. Okay, one more question. Yes, Mike. Thank you, thank you, Steve. Excuse me if this is a dumb question, but 
I recall Saunders Row from hovercraft activity. Um, did your grandfather have any inputs in ideas which evolved into hovercraft? And if so, was there any connection with his American project back in the early years with that gyrocopter? Hmm. Um, I, I, I think not, to be honest. Um, I think Saunders Row were an amazingly inventive company. Um, I think they built the second computer after IC, I, I, ICL, or whatever they called themselves then. Um, it, they were very, very early in a lot of things. They, they, they built rockets. They had a rocket firing station on the needles, which is still there. Um, so that it was called Black, Black Knight, I think. Um, I, they had, I mean, it was interesting. Um, surfacing and um, construction materials was another of their big things. And they were very into um, laminated plywood, which at that time was the new wonder um, thing before fiberglass came along. And they had a very large um, uh, uh, plywood factory uh, making very high quality plywoods for all sorts of uses, including aircraft. But um, a lot of the ships in those days, the doors and things were made out of plywood. And of course, nowadays, you know, you talk to the, we went to a, a design uh, um, exhibition at the VA on plywood and, you know, how, how um, fashionable it now is, really, as, as, a, as a, um, a material. Um, even, you know, Marcos used to build cars out of them and mm -hmm. so on. And, and yep. Ladies and gentlemen, Eric Verdon Rowe. Thank you. You're just, you're going to have to stay, stay put for just one moment. We're going to break away from normal protocol. Will you please welcome our chairman of BTM, Neil Bailey. Thanks very much. Um, I'm only here really to firstly to say thank you for an interesting talk. It obviously, it's concentrated on your ancestors rather than yourself. Understand that for reasons of modesty and many, many reasons. But I'd just like to point out that Eric's been a great supporter of this museum in many, many ways for many years. And carrying on from all the exploits we heard of Sir Elliot, you've been a great supporter of the museum and recently particularly a great supporter of the BTM in what we're trying to do, which we're very grateful for. And we thought it was appropriate to award you honorary membership of the BTM in recognition oh. of that and all that you've done and all that you continue to do. So I'm delighted to give you a certificate that Fantastic. gives you a membership and, of course, two membership cards, one for yourself and one for your wife. <laughs> and last but not least, a lapel badge, which oh. I'm sure you will <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Can I uh, just add my thanks, Eric, because you've given me a lot of support in getting people along here. We've had some spectacular evenings, so thank you very well, much indeed. You. Okay, normal service resume. Or do you want to say something? Just a plug for the book, if anyone wants it afterwards. <laughs> well, there's a surprise. <laughs> um, Eric's got a book here, and I'm sure we'll put some on the table uh, for sale later on. So if we could get the raffle machine going. Just talk amongst yourself. Now, it's some bad news tonight. There's no WD-40, OK? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You can blame this gentleman.